thank you all for coming. Uh, I'm going to get us started. Uh, I appreciate you all coming in, uh, uh, late in the day on a on a on a cold and gray uh, day. It was actually pretty sunny. Yeah. It's cold. Maybe this is why. Yeah, I know. This is why. <laughs> Everybody's out there. Um, but thank you for coming. This is a, obviously a, a contemporary topic. Uh, yeah, uh, 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 quite pertinent to the, the city of Charlottesville and the Commonwealth of Virginia, but wider too. And there's some there's some per, uh, specific uh, and particular quirks of Virginia law that we might talk about today. But we're also going to talk about um, the, the the general distribution of power between federal, state, and local governments, uh, which I think has uh, attained heightened significance. Um, in the last couple of years, uh, certainly since uh, uh, the Trump administration and the, the, the uh, uh, debate about sanctuary cities, but also about local monuments and many, many, many other things. Um, so we brought together a terrific panel today for you. My name is Rich Schrager. I teach uh, urban law and policy here, property law. I've published a book called City Power, uh, uh, which I urge you all to go out and buy and read uh, because it's relevant to so many things. Uh, but, uh, but the real treat is, um, is my co-panelist. Um, I'm going to uh, uh, talk about Yishai Blank first. He's a uh, professor at Tel Aviv University. He was the vice dean there for a while. He um, uh, has degrees from many law schools, including Tel Aviv and Harvard, um, multiple degrees from Harvard. Um, uh, and he writes in the area of local government, law and sexuality, land use, um, uh, and many other things. Uh, he has visited in many places. He's currently visiting. He's a currently visiting professor at Harvard Law School, teaching local government up there. And I was able to persuade him to come down. Uh, uh, for this event, basically so I could see you and talk to you, um, but uh, you guys get to take advantage of him too by, by being here. The other person to my right is Professor Molly Brady. Some of you know her already. She is a superstar young faculty member uh, who I'm also incredibly pleased to have on, on this faculty. Most of the time when I talk about local government law or state and local government with my colleagues, they walk away rudely <laughs> and turn their backs or they just make a face like this and then say, that's okay, Rich, and they pat you gently as if you're a crazy person. That's because they're obsessed with the Supreme Court or federal law or administrative law or something like that. And it's unfortunate because much of the action of uh, lawmaking in this country, as you know, takes place on the state and local level. Very important. And if you read City Power, you'll see how important that is. Uh, Professor Brady is uh, just fabulous to have for me personally on the faculty to be able to talk to about these issues, and, and I know she is engaged in them as much as I am. Uh, she is also uh, a graduate of many fine institutions, including Harvard and Yale, uh, uh, and um, uh, has published already widely, even in her young career. She teaches local government law, as many of you know, and land use, and is, um, I think, a, already a superstar teacher. Uh, at least that's what people tell me. But I, you know, I think it's because she gives out donuts or bagels or something. They know. <laughs> they already know this. 
In any case, we're really pleased to, to, to have both of these panelists. Uh, Professor Brady's going to speak first. She has some slides because uh, she's of the next generation and understands the multimedia needs of our students. Then Yishai Blank will, Professor Blank will, will read from a yellow legal pad because he's old school. And then I will. Old. Oh, old, old school. And then I will say a few words as well. And we want to have plenty of time for con uh, conversation and questions. So, um, so I'll, st I'll stop now and um, hold your questions until, until the end, and, and, and we will take those. Uh, when, we're, when, when we're finished. So, Professor Brady, thank you. Terrific. Uh, thanks to all of you for being here, all my students, especially even though I didn't uh, sell you donuts today. Uh, I appreciate you being here. Um, so I am the uh, probably Virginia person on this panel who will talk specifically about Virginia state-local conflict, but uh, sort of a, a, an example that is, I think, a microcosm of some of the bigger issues we'll talk about uh, that the subsequent panelists will talk about. Um, so I'm going to talk mostly about the state and local conflict uh, we've, of course, been subject to here in Charlottesville, uh, which is the one relating to the Confederate monuments, with some pretty specific examples. Um, so as many, if not all of you know, um, the controversy dates really to February of 2017, which is when the Charlottesville City Council voted to relocate the statue. It was a split uh, vote. This is the Lee statue. Um, it followed six months of public forums and commission meetings, uh, passed on a 3-2 vote. Um, and the counselors were pretty aware uh, that there was going to be uh, lawsuits, at least, resulting from this. Um, and at the time, at least one of them said they welcomed the lawsuits they'd been through worse. Um, and why would there be lawsuits? Well, that's because of this unusual form of state law. So I'm about to put a wall of text up, but I have helpfully highlighted parts of it in blue. Uh, so this is the provision of the Virginia Code that involves monuments that is known as the Monument Ban. Um, and so this is the present version of it. You can see the first part says that a locality may, within its limits, uh, erect a statue. Um, and then the subsequent part talks uh, about uh, the restrictions on disturbing or interfering with it. Um, so here there is an authorization to do something. That's because, as you will know from either local government or land use, if you're in one of those, we need authorization <laughs> for localities to do things in Virginia uh, because of Dillon's rule. So there's this authorization to erect monuments paired with a ban on disturbing or interfering with them. This law actually dates from 1904, um, and at the time, this is the 1904 version, I believe, which is limited to Confederate monuments. Um, so Virginia was the first of many states to have some sort of law disabling <coughs> localities from removing monuments. Uh, now the list includes Georgia, Maryland, North Carolina, Tennessee, Missouri, and most recently Alabama, which uh, enacted a monument ban in 2017. Uh, these vary in procedures and requirements, so some allow for them to be moved but not obstructed from view in any way. Some allow for them to be taken down upon a vote of a certain amount of the state legislature. Uh, South Carolina, for instance, is a two-thirds vote of uh, both chambers of the legislature, uh, so they differ in different respects, but uh, Virginia's is the first one, um, and so I think it's important for this reason. So why did this ban exist? Where did it come from? This is a question I'm interested in answering, uh, although there are a couple leads. Uh, so the immediate cause of the legislation uh, was that the state House of Delegates was inundated with requests for special legislation relating to monuments, uh, particularly in the year 1903. 
So I'll put a bunch up, but you don't have to read them. Just to show you how many there were, these are all from 1903. Uh, requests from counties in particular, seeking authorizations relating to fencing, to appropriating funds for Confederate monuments, and needing the authority to receive them or build them at all. Um, and this practice of counties requesting uh, authorizations for monuments had been going on since 1871 in the Virginia House of Delegates, where they had been receiving these requests from local delegates pertaining to counties and cities and various private associations uh, erecting monuments either to the Confederate dead or to specific military figures. Uh, the first request, as I mentioned, comes from 1871, which is uh, from the Lee Monumental Association to raise money and procure property for a Robert E. Lee Memorial uh, statue in Richmond less than a year after Lee's death, which was in 1870. Uh, the records surrounding the Lee Monumental Association are published, uh, and they give some indication of the reason for putting the monument up in the words of those who were members of the Lee Monumental Association. So obviously, Again, many of you are probably familiar with uh, this idea of the lost cause, uh, that it was about liberty, new constitutionalism rather than slavery. Um, additionally, it was absolutely about commemoration of the dead. Um, but there was also a lot of deep hatred for the federal government and for the North. Um, so I'll read you a couple quotes. Uh, so this is at the formation of the Lee Monumental Association. This is from Colonel Charles Marshall, a former Confederate, uh, Confederate figure. New outrages upon our liberties and rights by the federal government. New insults to our honor may tempt us to forget that our hands no longer hold the saber or rifle. To whom shall we turn for that strength which will enable us to keep faith with the faithless? We can no longer see the noble example which Lee set before us, but that we may not err from the path which he trod. At here, at the place toward which the eyes and hearts of all our people turn, we will rear a monument." He also gave a dedication speech uh, at the Ulysses S. Grant statue in New York City, but notably left out all the stuff about the violence uh, when he went up there. Uh, General Henry Wise, uh, also uh, in designating the monument, uh, called the Washington Monument a meretricious mockery of all taste that northern mechanics have put upon this monument of George Washington in the Capitol Square of Richmond. Let's get a work of some native artist of the South worthy of the man it molds. So here is a uh, picture, I think, of the meretricious mockery. Uh, so that is meretricious mockery, apparently. The other statues built by artists of the South, uh, less so. Notably, the authorizations pertaining to the Lee Monument did not have a ban associated with them. So the first monument ban dates from 1876, and it was without any other precedent. It dates to one of the earliest monuments actually built, uh, which was the monument in Westmoreland County, Virginia, at the courthouse in Montrose, Virginia. Uh, Westmoreland County is the birthplace of both Washington, George Washington, and Robert E. Lee, even though both were only children there. Um, so the monument is, my clicker works, on the right there. I'll tell you about these other folks. Um, so who was behind the monument? It was the Ladies Memorial Association of Westmoreland County. Uh, it was headed up by this woman on the left, Lucy Beale, who was the wife of UVA graduate Richard Lee Beale, uh, 37, who studied law at this university. Uh, he had also been a brigadier general in the Confederate States Army. Uh, the ladies were a group of about 21 women, as young as 16 years old. Uh, many of them all descended from the same old Virginia families, um, and census records indicate they were quite wealthy. 
Uh, Westmoreland County had lost about 148 residents during the Civil War, approximately one-third of the total number of soldiers they sent. Um, although it appears that most of these women, the women of the Ladies Memorial Association, were actually untouched uh, by, by the conflict. Uh, and perhaps that, as well as their uh, old family connections, many of them to Robert E. Lee himself, uh, initially they wanted the monument to be to Lee, uh, but eventually they changed it to a memorial to the war dead, which is what there uh, was put up and still is there. So why the ban originated here is difficult to figure out. Uh, the author of the legislation, there were two, one was Beale, um, but William Walker was the member of the House of Delegates who also uh, authorized, uh, drew, the, drew the language up authorizing the monument and putting the ban in. Um, both of them were, of course, married to women in the Ladies Memorial Association. Um, I can hazard a few guesses uh, as to why the ban was put in. One is that uh, newspapers and contemporary books all have one word for this structure on the right, costly, 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 costly. It was bigger than the few monuments that had been constructed before it, had extensive carvings associated, uh, and actually attempting to finance it came with some embarrassment, including the ladies commissioning 500 tiny busts of Robert E. Lee uh, to try to sell to finance the statue. They actually never paid the sculptor who kept writing them about it until he died. Um, uh, but they were trying to finance this thing and had a lot of problems with it. Um, so potentially the ban was about inducing investment through the promise of permanence or perpetuity, but that's not entirely satisfying. Um, I haven't yet found records of whether there was sort of any other controversy about putting the monument up, uh, although they later did decide, the ladies as well as uh, the House of Delegates, that it needed to be surrounded by an enclosure, by a fence, um, which is striking. Not every monument that was authorized between 1876 and 1904 contained the ban. Uh, in fact, several did not. I think I have a couple on the slide, maybe. There we go. So Rappahannock does not. Uh, there's others that do not include a ban at the time. Uh, one, which is in Alexandria. Oh, actually, sorry, this is the authorizing legislation. So you can see sort of the first monument ban here. Um, Alexandria actually did have a differently worded, worded ban, which forbid the city council from revoking permission for monuments. Um, but eventually the ban works its way into most of the special legislation, specifically in 1903, so right before the, the full ban itself and the authorization for all counties goes in. Um, and by that time, there definitely was a monument controversy, um, which was the placement of Lee, a monument to Lee, in Statuary Hall in Washington. Um, so I would not be surprised if there was a connection between the sort of proliferation of the bands and, uh, and this controversy that was going on. I think I have something. There's the cool bus that the Ladies Memorial Association tried to sell and nobody ever got paid for. Uh, there's a few of the uh, legislation pieces of it without the ban. Uh, and then I think here, yeah, so this shows, uh, this is just a newspaper article from 1903, which talks a bit about the controversy about sending uh, sending Robert E. Lee to Statuary Hall. The governor actually refused to sign the bill that would have uh, cemented it. Uh, it ended up going to Statuary Hall anyway and is still there. Um, but there was definitely controversy about monuments by this point. So I think that is a piece of why we get, uh, why we get more of the bans in 1903 and then the full ban in 1904. Um, the ban itself goes through several iterations. So there are additional wars added, um, as well as additional other additional language. So not just the Confederate monuments, right, but also monuments to all sorts of wars. 
Um, but of course the ban remains now 113 <clears throat> years later. Um, and the issue that it raises is what happens when a city no longer wishes to be associated with the message that the monument conveys, but the state is forcing them to be associated with that message, which is, I think, the speech question that we are hopefully going to discuss a bit. Um, interestingly, the United States Supreme Court has discussed monuments as speech before. In a different case from a different context called Pleasant Grove City, uh, versus Summum, and this is a 2009 case. And there they were taking up whether a city had to allow a monument related to a small religion in addition to its Ten Commandments monument. The question was whether monuments are private speech in a public forum, so within the First Amendment rules governing uh, the regulation of private speech, or whether monuments are government speech subject to different limitations. And the Supreme Court held that monuments, whether they are publicly financed or uh, privately donated, are government speech. So the city did not have to allow a monument from this private group, this small religion. And they noted in that case that it is not common for property owners to open up their property for the installation of permanent monuments that convey a message with which they do not wish to be associated. As a function of the monument ban, we have government speech, the city's speech, restricted by another government. And one of the lingering questions for those of us who study uh, local government law is what are the city's rights against the state? This is what we're always talking about. So they don't always parallel the state's rights against the federal government. Sometimes city sovereignty looks like federal state relations, uh, but sometimes subdivisions of states are subject to much more commandeering uh, than the states themselves might ever be from the feds. Uh, so for a long time, cities lost out, had been totally subject to and beholden by state regulation, distrusted. Uh, but over the course of the 20th century, that view morphed along a variety of doctrinal axes, uh, leading to persuasive arguments today that cities are more powerful uh, than you might otherwise think. Uh, but even if you do think cities are powerless at the hands of the states above them, there are some inconvenient doctrines for you if you think cities are powerless. And indeed, there are some spaces where the Constitution, oddly, does protect the constitutional rights of cities. So perhaps our panel question is uh, less academic than it might seem. And so one that's from my own area of expertise, which is takings, uh, involves intergovernmental takings. So city constitutional property rights. Turns out that states cannot recklessly seize municipal land for state purposes without compensation. It's a complicated doctrine, but typically compensation is, at minimum, required when the municipality is acting in its proprietary capacity versus its governmental capacity. The distinction between governmental and proprietary comes from uh, tort laws regarding immunity, but it's used in a lot of contexts to define when the city is acting as a corporation versus when it's acting as a government. And this is uh, intriguing, cities having constitutional property rights, because the takings clause, of course, only requires compensation when private property is taken for public use. But that has been interpreted also to protect public property. Um, and so cities do have constitutional property rights against the state. And so I think putting some of these ideas together, the Supreme Court has held that monuments are speech. Uh, they've also held in that same opinion that the meaning of monuments changes over time but that monuments remain associated with the unit of government that owns the property on which they are displayed. And that is a language from the court. Uh, so cities also have some constitutional rights, property at least, uh, 
and, and some others <coughs> that hopefully we'll discuss later. And so I think this question of what's proprietary and what's governmental might matter here, uh, that it might be governmental speech on city property, um, which might be more protected than we would think. Um, and so the question that we are, we are teeing up and again hopefully discussing today is whether it's right for one government to control another government's speech, uh, particularly if the city is operating uh, this, this uh, or engaging in this speech in its proprietary capacity, which is when I think their constitutional rights are at their apex. So I think some of what the next few panelists have to say will sort of follow on that question, um, but uh, I'd wanted to introduce you to the history of the monument itself and talk about that state-local conflict in particular. Thank you, Professor Brady. Uh, Professor Blake. Thank you so much. Um, you want to be no, it, turn no. on, yeah. On. It's working? Okay. So first of all, thanks uh, to Professor Richard Schrager for inviting me. It's a real pleasure. Uh, and in truth, that it was mostly an excuse to, uh, um, to talk to him and to know uh, some other uh, new faculty around here. Um, but it's also my first visit here, and I'm ve very excited and thrilled. Uh, and also um, thankful for the opportunity to talk about that. Um, which is kind of my current research, and therefore I think a little bit like Professor Brady, um, I'm also experimenting with you, um, and any thoughts about it would be really, really welcome. Um, and some of my thoughts about it are also um, still kind of under uh, construction, so it would be uh, terrific to, uh, to see how it goes. Um, and, and in a way, I'm taking a step back and trying to expand a little bit the discussion, uh, because, uh, because the way that uh, Professor Brady talked about it um, was focusing on a particular um, expression, so to speak, of the speech, uh, which is around monuments and other, um, perhaps, I don't know, maybe you would expand it to also flags or other signs uh, that localities are putting on their city hall. Um, and I want to um, lump together almost all of the expressions that, that cities are engaging in um, and think about them as what I call city speech uh, and whether we can, um, again, protect all these forms of city speech under the First Amendment of the Constitution um, and I'll talk a little bit about what are the pros and cons and what would it actually give us and how it can be done. And again, kind of um, at least um, trying to begin to think about that. Um, so first of all, what is spe city speech? Um, of course, like anything, and I think this was brought in the um, question whether monument is speech or not, the line between an expression and an action is a very difficult one. Um, and you know, one of your professor, uh, Fred Schauer, of course, wrote about it, um, kind of questioning whether there was any meaning to free speech, but we're kind of thinking through that, um, accepting the different the distinction, difficult as it is between speech and um, and action, and granted, therefore, that many of these things will uh, will continue to be um, um, a question. Um, but under again, kind of the general um, framework of speech, um, I would put many many of of um, instances erecting monuments, maintaining them, um, uh, taking them down are one expression. Again, rainbow flags, uh, Black Lives Matter signs on town hall that again are appearing throughout the country uh, are another expression. Um, statutes of, uh, of um, um, let's say, uh, um, again, a question that came up uh, in California, uh, comfort women, Korean comfort women kind of commemorating their uh, suffering in the Second World War are another example. Uh, but I would even take it further to the more political kind of uh, realm of speeches. Um, so one, is, uh, one um, element is lobbying. So cities are lobbying in both state capitals, but also in Washington. Again, under the, the contemporary uh, doctrine of free speech, um, this might be speech. So if private corporations did that, 
that would definitely be speech, it would be political speech, and the question is whether when cities do that, this is also counts as political speech. Um, then participating in statewide um, um, ballot initiatives, um, let's say that the state wants to either increase or decrease or do something with its property tax, cities have you know, a huge stake um, in that and they might actually want to uh, spread some materials around um, that and educate the citizen, try to convince them to do that, and these questions have come up to court, so that is another more um, um, mode of speech. And lastly, direct political contributions. So can cities actually decide to contribute to um, a political action campaign um, of some kind of a political candidate? Today it's completely um, uh, inconceivable. It is blocked not only by federal law, but also by many state <coughs> constitutions that prohibit cities from engaging in political contributions. Once we define um, all these actions as speech protected under the First Amendment, it will have huge ramifications. The most clear ramification, again, as Professor Brady um, said, um, would be that when the state tries to preempt that, that is to um, either amend its authorizing laws or to directly say this is prohibited, then if we have First Amendment, the same way that private corporations can actually approach the courts and say this law is actually uh, unconstitutional under the federal constitution, we might um, have cities doing the same. Um, con contemporarily, uh, it's impossible. So um, this is actually a reform or a suggestion to reform um, in a way that, I, again, I will try to explain what might be the avenues to do that. Uh, but this is kind of a radical departure from um, existing doctrine. Um, the, the second thing that, um, that, again, such framing might have um, is that perhaps, again, as Professor Brady said, current doctrine is that localities need to be um, specifically authorized to do various activities, especially in, Virgi in Virginia, which is a, a Dillon rule uh, state, but even in home rule states, that is where there is larger or more expansive authorization, courts have been narrowly construing the idea of home rule. And again, perhaps if we see localities or cities as First Amendment speakers, it can also influence the mode of construction, so it will be more expansive and it will actually authorize cities to do more than they can today. Okay. So um, I do want to say before I kind of talk about the pros and cons a little bit um, is to distinguish it from the mode of government speech that Professor Brady um, um, discussed. The way that government speech again was developed, as, as you've said, um, is that the court has said, well, when government speaks, First Amendment doesn't apply in the sense that when dissenting taxpayers actually want to say, well, I'm not pleased with this action of the locality, it's a First Amendment right that I have not to be implicated in this speech. Courts have said, no, First Amendment doesn't apply, it's government speech. What I'm actually trying to do is to inverse the picture and say First Amendment does apply here, but it applies to the city itself, so it can actually raise its First Amendment right vis-a-vis -vis both private individuals and also vis-a-vis -vis other levels of government. Okay, so first of all, why would it be a good idea? Maybe it's a really bad idea. So the first is from the Republican tradition of, first, of uh, free speech. Again, in contemporary uh, American doctrine, um, a lot of emphasis has been given to the, what is called the libertarian, or some even called it the Lochnerian kind of um, um, turn in free speech doctrine, where the emphasis is actually not on the speaker, but on the listener. So it's a marketplace of idea. What we want to have is as many, you know, let a million flowers bloom, everyone should speak, not because their speech is valuable or because it somehow contributes to their autonomy, but because of the listener. So I actually want to take, um, 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 I would say, a turn from that and re-emphasize the importance of Republican speech. 
Um, and city speech for me represents perhaps um, the most um, desirable form of such speech. It is a speech where all of us are actually engaging through the democratic process. It is our representatives that are actually framing or forming this kind of speech. We talk about it in, in, uh, in, in council meetings, the mayor talks about it. Um, and, I, and it might actually also therefore have some policy ramifications because we might want to develop some procedures to make sure that the speech is truly republican in the sense that it is truly democratic, in the sense that it's truly inclusive, that it's participatory, etc. And in this sense, again, this kind of republican uh, mode of speech um, is also about amplifying the voices of dissenting communities amplifying the voices that are often kind of uh, banished or just not heard at the national level and not even at the state level. Um, so that is the first um, kind of reason why. Um, the second is a more egalitarian or, um, or, or what I call a, a counter-corporate power speech. So again, one of the problems is that many, many um, observers are, and, and also you know, non-professionals can see is the amount of influence that corporate, um, um, that private corporations actually have in politics, in contemporary uh, American politics. Um, and it is both in politics in the sense of uh, the influence on the electoral process, and of course since uh, you know, Citizens United, but also McCulloch, it has been even more uh, influential. But it's also in the setting of the national um, uh, media agenda. Um, and again, the greater and the increased importance of national news media. So nationalization in the sense of both Washington influence and of kind of uh, more uh, national um, um, corporations. Um, and what is left aside um, or what is left to actually combat that are NGOs. Um, and the problem with NGOs are that they are voluntary. Um, so here actually I'm taking the coercive element of local governments and instead of seeing it as a thing which is bad and which is why we should actually not allow cities to talk, I actually want to use this coercive element in order to counter um, the growing influence of, um, of corporations um, on our politics. Um, and, uh, and think, for example, about uh, an example, again, of, uh, let's say, a statewide ballot about um, uh, property tax. Um, so there are many, many groups that are interested in lowering, let's say, property tax. Who are these groups? Mostly, they can be mostly, again, businesses, but also homeowner associations, again, which we know are increasingly important and are, occupy a huge part. All of them want, actually, property taxes to be reduced so they can privately tax through various measures, and they can participate in all of these, both um, donating money to political candidates and also to statewide ballots, and cities, which are, again, a very interested party in that can simply not do that or do not have any protection if, let's say, either courts or state uh, legislatures decide to deprive them of that. So again, kind of to just um, balance, again, um, some of the imbalances that are created in our politics. Um, third is federalism. Um, so again, one of the things which we can see today um, is that there's um, a nationalization of state politics. Um, so many of the debates or kind of the ideas, you know, the uh, Brandeis idea of states serving um, as, um, as laboratories of experimentation or just generally as locations for, plurali for pluralism of ideas, etc., um, then one of the things with the, bi with the um, growing partisanship of, uh, of Washington politics it's also that the states have just become um, almost a, a siphon for, um, for Washington politics. That means, again, that we need to find, again, what would be the location for maintaining federalist ideas such as diversity, pluralism, uh, jurisdictional competition, experimentation, 
um, and also expression of minority views. And these are the cities, and therefore, again, there is a big debate in the literature, and I would say that there are good arguments that can be made um, for seeing cities as such. And in this sense, if we give them, again, these First Amendment rights, they can better protect themselves from, uh, from state encroachment or from federal um, encroachment. Um, and uh, maybe just one kind of tied thing to that um, is, um, is in praise of some kind of mode of radical politics. Um, but that won't be um, just in the form of, of, uh, of let's say, unregulated uh, radical expressions. But again, since um, these kind of more extreme or more radical expressions do go through the democratic process of cities, they can, on one hand, allow for more radical and kind of dissenting views to be aired, and on the other hand, they're not just out of, uh, uh, out of control. Okay, so um, very quickly, um, why, um, why, cities, why First Amendment rights to cities can be a bad idea. Uh, first thing um, is that it might give advantage and unfair advantage to rich cities. Okay, so the more we actually let cities speak, perhaps what we're doing is exacerbating um, kind of the unbalanced uh, position between rich cities, now they will also be able to donate money and they will be able to uh, do various campaigns and in this sense to even perhaps exacerbate um, the, the advantages that they have. I think it should be taken seriously, this um, um, claim, um, but that also means that when I say that um, cities would have First Amendment um, uh, rights, it doesn't mean that they will be unregulated. So the same way that the court has accepted, for example, you know, that political speech is uh, is First uh, Amendment protected, doesn't mean that there are no compelling interests that can at least somehow regulate it, equalize it, and do various other measures. So when we say First Amendment rights to cities, I'm not mean, I don't mean anything goes, etc. Um, but also I would say um, that, um, that the way that, again, kind of the imbalance between powerful cities and, 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 and poor cities go today uh, is that strong cities anyway have a lot of clout and influence. Maybe it's through the political process, again, kind of uh, influences at the state legislature. And this way, we at least let poor cities also, if they want, um, to actually express themselves, use their money to do that, etc. Second, why is it a bad idea? Um, that uh, that city speech uh, implicates people, um, us, um, who might dissent or disagree with the speech in a speech that we don't want. So what do we do with that when your city, let's say, endorses now Trump or Hillary Clinton and you really think that it's a terrible, terrible idea and now your money actually goes to this campaign. So first thing is that it happens to us all the time when as minority, our city actually uh, invests a lot of money in activities that we disagree with, we don't want, etc. So that's part of the democratic process um, in this sense. Um, and the second is that I'm willing to actually also consider various opt-out mechanisms. So again, this has been offered um, um, at the level of corporate speech and at the level of union speech, um, when various mechanisms such as, okay, let's say you're a member of a union, the union expresses some view that you don't want, you can actually get some of your money back. So perhaps, you know, if the city gave, you know, I don't know, a million dollar to something and I don't want that, the city can ask us, whoever wants to opt out can get, you know, his or her $10 back from um, this uh, kind of citywide investment. Uh, but generally speaking, I'm not for opt-out rights. I just think that this is part of the political process. This is part of democracy. And the one thing that we need to make sure is, however, that maybe some of these more extreme forms of speech, that is, let's say, political um, donations, um, would require supermajority in city uh, council, etc. Um, the third, um, why can it be a bad idea, um, is that city speech serves local elites 
and not local constituents. Okay, so this is kind of classical uh, um, uh, um, the dilemma or the problem of the agent, right? Agent agency problems. Um, and again, this has also been discussed in the in the context of um, uh, of corporate donations. Um, you know, articles by Bebchuk, etc., um, that are actually expressing concern over it in the corporate um, context. It turns out that usually or often, when corporations donate money to politicians, it's not for the benefit of the shareholders, it's, which are you and, 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 and I, right? It's actually more to the benefit of the managers. So they would press for more bonuses and for less regulation, et cetera, et cetera. Not things that are necessarily good for the shareholders. But on this, what we can do, again, is the way that Babchuk and other scholars have offered to actually deal with the procedures that will make sure, or at least we mitigate, some of the agency problems. And again, this is not a problem which is particular to free speech. It's anything that our city does. We can think, well, it's actually agency problem. Um, and just the last thing that I want to mention is an exacerbation of fragmentation or balkanization. Again, the more radical and extreme city speech is, we can actually get into a more balkanized or radicalized uh, atmosphere. And the question is whether we think it's good or bad. And again, um, I think that it's a challenge, but I do think um, that it's not that our politics currently um, is very peaceful or pacified. Uh, and the question is what kind, therefore, of speech we want and what kind of political speech we want. And I think that the more voices that we actually have at the city level where groups of citizens can actually sit together and think together what is it that they want their cities to say, this will actually add to our um, uh, national dialogue rather than diminish, um, um, diminish it. So just um, in order to finish um, um, my, my long, my long um, um, speech, um, what I'm trying to say, therefore, as I already suggested, is not to give cities a First Amendment right that will be a joker that just kind of defeats, or a Trump that defeats everything. Um, so side by side with their First Amendment rights, um, I want to cities still to have their duties. So it's not that because we are now viewing them as First Amendment speakers, they don't have the duty of disestablishment, you know, First Amendment, but the disestablishment part, or they don't have their equal protection duties or due process or any of other duties that they have. And as you said, for example, or, you know, like we have the right of property. So what it would require is, however, a different balancing, balancing test. So side by side with their duties as, again, as government, <coughs> they will also have the rights as corporations. So it's kind of giving more room and more respect to the dual nature of, uh, of local governments that are on one hand governments, but on the other hand, um, they're corporations. Um, in this sense, it also goes in line with, uh, with various other proposals um, that have been off to, <coughs> to kind of disentangle First Amendment and to see it more kind of contextualized based on what institution speaks. And in this sense, we need to think, uh, kind of to start thinking about cities as First Amendment uh, institutions. Thank you, Ishan. That was great. Um, I'm not going to talk long because um, these it's just so fruitful, and I want to hear what people have to say. And I have some questions too. Um, what 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 I want to talk about a little bit is just what the because I think uh, when we raise the question of the rights, when we talk about the rights of cities or the rights of local governments, I think um, uh, the there's, there are questions about what the nature of a local government is or what the nature of the city is. And so at a conceptual level, we have trouble thinking about governmental entities as exercising rights 
because we assume individuals exercise rights and that governmental entities exercise power. And that the local government, just like any other level of government, is an exerciser of power, and that individuals in that government, or citizens, are exercisers of rights. Uh, citizens also include other groups, such as corporations or churches or universities or things like that, as <coughs> associations of individuals. But we don't think of cities as associations of individuals. We think of them as the state. And this has been a problem, and it creates this tension, which uh, Professor Brady points out, which is, well, how do cities have property rights if they're just a, an instrumentality or a feature of the state? And by the state, I mean both the Commonwealth of Virginia and the state as the government writ large. And how would they have First Amendment rights if they're just the state? What the state does is violate First Amendment rights. It doesn't actually enjoy First Amendment rights, and people assert First Amendment rights against the state. And yet we have these areas of the law, and Professor Brady points them out, but, but in which the, the uh, city and the local government is sometimes treated as if it had rights, like property rights, in its proprietary capacity as opposed to in its governmental capacity. That's a, a tricky line. Um, we don't think of them, uh, cities or local governments, as, as much as associations with associational rights that the individuals have. But these kinds of questions that uh, uh, professors Blank and Brady are raising raise these problems. So, for example, just to bring sanctuary cities into this conversation, we're talking about monuments and other things. In Texas, <coughs> the SB4, which is the, the ban on sanctuary cities, has provisions in the statute, and this is Texas telling local governments, cities and counties, that they can't be sanctuary cities, that is, they can't adopt certain policies. It also has language that says that those local governments can't endorse, can't endorse those policies. Mm -hmm. What does that mean exactly? Does it mean the city councilors can't talk about them, that the, the city itself can't pass a resolution that says, we're not doing this, but we really don't like what you're telling us, the, uh, Texas? What exactly does it mean you can't endorse? And what is it that, and there's also broad language in that statute about how you would advocate or, or advance uh, uh, sanctuary city policies of various kinds. That has been challenged already, and the, the courts are concerned about that kind of language. Um, and they're not quite sure what to do, to do about it, though. And I'll tell you why they're not quite sure. Because the city council, if we think of the city as just an aspect of the state, as an aspect of the state of Texas, for example, or an aspect of the government more generally, the city councilors don't really have First Amendment rights as city councilors, or the city doesn't really have First Amendment rights as the city. The councilors might have First Amendment rights in their individual kind of capacities. That's a way, again, of recreating the proprietary governmental distinction, but at the individual level. So maybe you'd be protecting the individual city councilors from, uh, from being told what to say or what to advocate by the state, because it looks a little weird to us for the state to be able to control their speech or their expression or their advocacy. And yet, on a kind of conventional view, they are not any more... Uh, exercises of First Amendment rights than anybody else in the city, in the state government, or in the city government. <clears throat> so I think, so just conceptually to think about this, 
on the one hand, we think of cities or local governments as aspects of the state, that is, exercisers of power. On the other hand, we, 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 we have some inkling that maybe they are ex- sort of exercisers of rights because they're subordinate to other governmental units, in, in particular the this, this state. Um, but we haven't quite worked this out. Um, let me say a little bit about the power side, and then I'll say a little bit about the rights side, just so we can, we can flesh this out a little bit more. So on the power side, um, we think of cities as exercising power because they're governmental. But in fact, they're, because they're subordinate, subordinate to the state, they only exercise some power. So in the Charlottesville instance, there's not a ton Charlottesville can do when it's told by the state for example, that they can't adopt local gun laws. So when the Charlottesville, when the protests came in August and folks marched around with guns in the downtown, it was hard for Charlottesville to resist or restrict those guns because of open carry laws in Virginia, which override local laws to the contrary. So the city exercises power, but its power is overridden by preemptive state law. And the second thing is the monuments legislation. So the city wants to take down its monuments. The state says you can't, which is another way of saying you, city of Charlottesville, can only speak officially, formally, expression in in the form of monuments at our sufferance, at the state's (coughs) sufferance. And so we think of the city as exercising a certain amount of power, but in fact it exercises quite limited power. It's one of these entities, institutions in society that... Um, is subordinate, subordinate to the state in this case, and yet we think of it as the state at the same time. So there are two ways in which that subordination il- uh, was illustrated in the, in the monuments controversy. On the, on the rights side, the failure to be able to just assert a straight-up First Amendment right, although there are now there's some ways maybe that they could, or we might think about it a little bit, we can talk about if that's possible doctrinally, is a function of the fact that, that the city qua city or the citizens as an association don't enjoy First Amendment rights, at least not on first glance. Um, why they don't is a question we've now raised, and, and, and we should think hard about why, why that would be. We might say, as a policy matter... It doesn't make that much sense for the state to decide which monuments are going to be put up in any given locality. Because why would the state care? Though they do care deeply, it seems. The legislature cares deeply. But why would they care? What would the reason be? And we might ask this. What's the reason that the state would try to regulate the speech of local governments or the expression or the monuments of local governments? And... There are some standard views on this. Well, you regulate it when there are externalities, when there are costs that one locality imposes on another, or, you, or when you need uniformity across the state or across the nation, or if there's minority oppression, if you're going to oppress people with your uh, local policy. But none of those things fit very well for monuments. There aren't really externalities of a monument, a local monument. There doesn't seem to be need for uniformity. Otherwise, we'd have the same monument in every town across the Commonwealth. And then oppression, well, some people lose and some people win. There are some people that want the monuments and some people that don't in Charlottesville. But we usually think of oppression when you pass a law that really hurts somebody in their material circumstances, not when you pass an expressive law, although maybe there is something to that. 
So we, we're not quite sure why the state has to has to have this have have this power over the locality. And so you could work along that dimension and say maybe we should distribute powers differently. Or you could work along this dimension, which is well maybe localities should assert rights vis-a-vis the state or the federal government. We're mostly talking about the state here, but we could talk about the federal government too. But rights have this funny thing, which is we don't we don't usually talk about the rights of coercive governmental units. We just don't. Why? Because they have the power of the state. They have a monopoly on violence. And they are they are considered the ones, again, that violate rights. But if we think again about Charlottesville a little bit, we can think about the vulnerability that the city itself felt, the city qua city, the citizens of the city also, when they were invaded by white supremacists and the lack of power to some degree that the city had in responding to that invasion. Individuals have brought lawsuits claiming a violation of civil rights against those white supremacists, but not the city. Why? Because we don't conceive of the city as having civil rights, right, that can be violated. Again, because we conceive of it conceptually as the state. But again, as Yishai Blaine points out, um, corporations are also large-scale entities that are institutional, made up lots of people, um, do get to assert certain kinds of rights, certainly property rights, certainly First Amendment rights, sometimes civil rights, presumably. And so this is a strange, local governments are in this strange place, which they are associations, they are units of government, but they neither exercise the full power of the state, and therefore they're vulnerable, and they don't have the defenses of rights, which makes them also quite vulnerable. Um, And the question is whether the doctrine can remedy this vulnerability, whether we want the doctrine to remedy this vulnerability, or whether it's, it's hopelessly muddled which is another possible question. So I put those, I put those questions to you, to you folks. Um, can the doctrine remedy this? Uh, do we want the doctrine to remedy this? You've just talked a little bit about that, Yishai, but, um, or is it just a hopeless model? It will be sort of case by case. I would say, I mean, in the takings context, we've had to have a sort of special, something special created for cities, municipal property rights that we protect with constitutional status. Um, so, you know, as a, as a baby step, I could envision something mm-hmm. like that rather than importing wholesale First Amendment, either private speech or corporate speech or government speech, um, something that would apply specifically to municipal speech. I mean, again, it's generated a lot of litigation, this sort of intergovernmental takings um, idea, but it is a separate category. Um, you know, it derives from the analogy to, uh, to corporations itself, um, but it has required a totally new, a totally new set, of, uh, set of doctrinal rules. Uh, should I, or, or do we want to pick up from the audience? I do have some things that I can um, relate to what maybe you asked. Um, so I think that it's not definitely the, the rights versus power is extremely helpful and correct in the sense that this is how we usually think. Um, but I think that the other kind of parallel um, way of thinking about it is, is how much the city is a corporation. Right, um, and in this sense, we definitely have even more examples—not just the intergovernmental taking—in um, which uh, local governments are really their corporate side is taken seriously. Right, I mean, one of the things is in bankruptcy, um, states 
don't really go bankrupt um, and, um, and cities go bankrupt. And it's not just the bankruptcy as a formal idea, it's also the reason that you can't really go down the way to the state, right? There's a veil of corporation that actually protects the state. The second is, of course, sovereign immunity as well. So states have sovereign immunity, the courts have refused to give sovereign immunity to cities. And these are just two examples. We also know that in antitrust cases, corporate entity of the city has also been taken seriously to its detriment. Um, one more thing about um, kind of the, the power of cities, um, and definitely I agree with you that they're kind of not only in the case, of course, of, of neo-Nazis marching here, but in many other cases, they're also powerless. Um, and, um, and that's, also, of course, because of the construction that they're state creatures. So on one hand, they're state creatures, but they don't really have the power of the state. And we should take that really seriously because, um, so some of the analogy between the states and the federal government is helpful. And you know, in federalism, we talk a lot about the idea of the, what's called the political safeguards of federalism. That is, some have argued that states don't need state rights because they have political safeguards. They're represented in Congress, they're represented you know, in, in both the House and the Senate. They're also represented in the presidency in the sense of the electoral system. Right? I mean, our political system is all around states. And there is no equivalent at the city level vis-a-vis -vis the state. So cities are just not existing in, in the state political structure. You could have, and you could have we could have devised a system where cities would be represented qua cities in, let's say, state senates. But as we know, the Supreme Court actually ruled that unconstitutional because of the one person, one vote. So cities have no political safeguards and also have no city, no rights. So I think that this somehow needs to be corrected. And again, if we look at the history of, 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 of the US, um, then cities had more political safeguards. You know, there was uh, petition, um, petitions and, and, um, and instructions where actually cities would instruct their um, uh, representatives how to vote, etc. Um, and all these kind of more political safeguards have been erased gradually. Um, so again, I agree that it doesn't really solve the rights power unless we can think about the third, um, which as you said, you know, it's the corporation. Does it have power or rights? Again, in the 19th century, it becomes clear that what it has is rights and cities have power. Not necessarily all the way, and I think that we still have enough to work with in which we can change it um, um, at least in respect to First Amendment rights. But of course, it's part of a more ambitious um, idea of how to empower cities um, legally. Questions? Comments? Yes. So the proposition here would be that that the city, <coughs> on the monuments question, has an unmitigated right to decide what should be celebrated and not celebrated on its own property, and maybe towns as well as cities, if I might say, um, given appropriate democratic process within their own jurisdiction. Now, given that proposition, what do you imagine would happen if the, uh, if the city of Charlottesville, for example, would sue the state under First Amendment principles demanding uh, this right? they lose. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Apparently. 
Well, so I, I, I want to modify that a little bit because we're on tape, so I've got to be careful. But under current doctrine, I think that it's, it's I, I think there is, um, um, I think Charlottesville, uh, um, qua Charlottesville, uh, under existing doctrine, has some difficulty asserting a First Amendment right for the reasons we've stated. Um, uh, there seems to be some doctrinal, and this is the question, some doctrinal room if a court were to say, well, in a sort of narrow circumstance, we're going to treat this particular kind of activity as speech that should be protected. And we see that in the SB4 litigation in Texas, which I mentioned, which is they talk about endorsement. And then what the court sort of said, the district court there says, you can't regulate that kind of city speech. What they mean by that, because it applies to cities, what they sort of meant by that is you can't regulate the speech of these local government officials. And they kind of, they're not as clear as one might want to be about what they're saying, whether it's the sort of the personal speech of the, of the city council uh, city councilors or this the speech of the city council cross city council there is a speech and debate clause which is supposed to protect legislatures in the federal constitution and there's a question of whether it applies to local government officials so the speech and debate clause might be used to do that work too it's a different kind of work I think the theory would be instead that the citizens of Charlottesville might have some kind of speech right as a collectivity that is being uh, uh, violated by the state removing the authority on the monuments to, a, to, to the state level. That's a slightly different argument. I think it's, it might be more plausible, which is to say when the state uh, puts a thumb on the scale of certain kinds of speech, in this case a certain kind of speech that, that's undesirable for a locality, that offends the, uh, the, a certain group of citizens' speech rights as a, as a kind of collective. Again, I think that's a little tricky. It's not, it's, not squarely, it's not squarely within your standard kind of First Amendment claim, but that would be, the, that would be the, maybe the kind of claim that you could assert. It would be, I think, novel... Uh, to say, oh, the city as a city has a speech right to take down monuments or put them up. Um, but again, um, um, we do treat cities in their corporate capacity on the proprietary side in lots of areas of law. And it would be the same in an intergovernmental takings claim too, right? So the state takes the property of Charlottesville, eminent domain. The state usually says, we are Charlottesville. You can't sue me because we own you, right? You're just a... And in fact, in intergovernmental takings, that's not true entirely. So there's no reason not to maybe extend that, but it would require some extension um, into the First Amendment. Yes, in the back. Like 
the state of Virginia declaring what sorts of monuments governments in Virginia to be associated with also be that same sort of action? Do you think that would be power not a right? Yeah, what do you guys think? So, I'm not, again, the way I'm conceptualizing this is outside of existing doctrine, but um, I don't conceive the act, the decision itself necessarily is a protected speech. When I'm thinking of the speech, particularly in the monument sense, I'm thinking that it's the fact that it's on your property, that it's the expression you are required to make with your property um, as being sort of the protected speech right. So the state, I think, is free to do whatever it wants on its property. If it wants to put on a state highway or a state road, whatever it wants to do, great. Um, it's not, it's that sort of the decision is sort of what you just, what, how you express on property um, as being the relevant decision rather than the actual act of legislating itself, which sort of seems very governmental, right? Um, but sort of you as property owner being forced to express in a particular way strikes me as more corporate or proprietary. Um, but I don't know if others have thoughts on what the, the speech act the, is. The act of legislating, it's an interesting move, does come up in the following sense, which is, in, say, in Texas and the sanctuary cities, but in other states, too. So what states have begun to do is say, uh, we preempt you, whatever law you're, you've, you local, it could be a minimum wage, it could be a sanctuary cities provision, we preempt you, and if you adopt this, we will put you in jail or we will fine you, or we will take all your money away, which states can do to localities unless there's home rule. The federal government can't do that except under particular Tenth Amendment restrictions, but states can do it. And then you raise this question, which is, well, is the act of actually adopting the law something that, say, the speech and debate clause should protect or some kind of speech right that the councilors, city councilors, or the city, because their money is getting taken away, whether the city should be able to assert some kind of political right, which might look like a speech or association right, to just be able to pass that law, even though it can't go into effect because the state has preempted it. But then you raise this interesting issue, which is the, the, there's an expression by the legislature, too. What about that? Right, I guess what 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 you have to decide is somebody's the state exercising power and someone is the locality. But our federalism jurisprudence, the state federal relationship, has a kind of protection for states for state legislation. It doesn't look like a speech, but it does look like a right that you can assert as a state against the feds. You can say you can't. They they talk about it in terms of power. But it looks a little like a right. You can't commandeer me. You can't coerce me. Looks like unconstitutional conditions. So in fact, we have something that looks a little like a right on, on the on the state federal federal angle. There was another hand. Yes. Yeah. Um, there's been challenge before the Supreme Court right now uh, to the Mississippi state flag because of its Confederate origins and symbolism on equal protection grounds. Do you think that? Well, no, I really don't know about enough about about this particular case to actually say something about that. Um, but I see that as as somehow lying outside of the of the idea of. Uh, um, of city speech that we are trying to actually talk about, um, and partly because, again, as 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 Professor Schreiber said, 
um, the status of states is very different in the sense um, that they um, that they they don't need um, some, some kind of private rights. Um, usually, first of all, they're seen as you know as sovereigns. So, according to the dual sovereignty um, kind of thesis, then they're sovereign and they can do whatever they want, except for, of course, the duties that they have, which is, so it depends whether you can construe it as some, perhaps as a racial, um, as motivated by racial animus, or some kind of, a, again, of an equal protection, uh, depending on, I guess it would be hard to find their, you know, like, real intention, but maybe if you, um, if you accept some kind of a lower standard of review, um, um, so it, I don't think that it would be an intermediary level, but definitely, you know, the animus test could be um, if you were able to demonstrate that it's some kind of the context, right? I mean, again, and, and you know, with with uh, with a recent kind of travel ban, where the court was actually willing to also use extra uh, extra legal kind of evidence of intention intentions, maybe something like that um, could be uh, could be articulated. But I think again that it's important, therefore, also in the city context to understand that it's not about anything goes, right? I mean, it's not about this libertarian idea. Um, of, of, you know, that you can actually um, analogize cities as, as neo-Nazis marching or doing whatever they want. There are still governments and they would be still kind of uh, um, bound by, by their various, you know, equal protection or other uh, constitutional uh, duties and states definitely are bound by that. I don't know if it answers um, the concrete challenge, but I don't know enough about that. Yeah, so the, this is the Fifth Circuit case, and the, you know the equal protection argument there is a is um, is that individuals, right, who do have rights and are protected by the equal protection clause, say that uh, the Confederate flag is a symbol of racial superiority and white supremacy. Right. And that it's, it was animated by that, so that's the animus part, and that that violates <coughs> equal protection. Um, that's borrowed a little bit from establishment clause doctrine, which says that you can challenge symbols uh, of, say, religious superiority, and the court has, has found that you can do that under the establishment clause. What they haven't really done is say you can do that under the equal protection clause. The First Circuit, you, as you know, uh, probably said there's no standing there. But the Supreme Court might look at that because the logic is the same. What that doesn't do is say anything about what the rights of a city would be. You could bring that claim against, say, the Lee Monument or the Jackson and say this is a symbol of racial superiority and it was animated by animus and therefore it's invalid under the Equal Protection Clause by individuals. And then we'd have to decide whether they have standing. That flips it though, because you're just you're just you're just a rights holder, articulating a, a claim against the power, and the power is the state. The city says we don't want it either, but they're just sort of a bystander at that point. Here we want to talk about whether the city qua city, whether the citizens as citizens of the city of this association of this political community have a, a group right essentially represented presumably by city officials or the city itself and that's trickier for these reasons even though they're in a kind of a status that could invite that and might be a better kind of claim. One of the areas where I think this is kind of sticky is where the city is kind of the home of the state too, like in Richmond. Mm -hmm. the, the Lee Monument I think is, is the most interesting and the most hopeless maybe <laughs> um, in terms of removal. I imagine there's no 
since it is on state property, it was purchased by the state, it was accepted by the state, whether the city would have any, you know, any ability to remove it there based on my First Amendment rights when it's, I mean, it, it kind of coexists there in the capital. That's very interesting. But I would, I would just say that, um, that you could think that even if other cities have some kind of a free speech protection, then maybe in cases of capital, the state can come up with a compelling state interest. Okay, so again, I mean, once we're in the free speech doctrine, of course, it's not that you can never think of, of you know, or at least maybe, and again, it depends whether it would be, you know, a content-based limitation or, or a neutral-based limitation. If it's a neutral-based, so it's not about prohibiting some kind of speech, but actually about any form, then you can say we're, we're in a lower level of free speech, you know, and then it's not even a compelling. It's a substantive and narrowly tailored rather than compelling and precisely tailored. So you can say, well, only in cases of capitals, we can actually let states have some overriding considerations. Again, I'm not saying that in this particular case, this is what I would want, but, but what I'm saying is that it would open a different mode of engaging of the relationship between states and localities while now the cities are just seen as completely submissive, they're just state agents, and they have no protection vis-a-vis -vis state intervention, this will at least allow some different kind of dialogue um, between them. Uh, Professor Blank, you uh, made a very interesting point about comparing cities on one side to corporations on the other, and how corporations have speech, whereas cities do not. Mm -hmm. uh, one question that I thought came from that is, is the idea that corporations are very temporary, whereas cities are more or less forever. Um, no matter how poorly a city is managed, financially or otherwise, it really won't go away unless everyone abandons it, Detroit being the prime example. Um, but with a corporation, even if it is right now a very powerful corporation, it can vanish within just a few short years. Uh, there's you know, the Blade Runner concept comes to mind where all the corporations that were on display in that movie, 70% of them are all bankrupt and obsolete now. And I was just wondering if maybe there's a meaningful distinction to be had between an agency that has a complete monopoly over taxation and zoning and where you can build your house and where your sewage and water comes and something that really relies on people to continue and sponsoring them voluntarily every time they make a purchase. So first of all, for sure, yes. Um, but I think that exactly from the examples that you gave in the end, that they can tax, zone, et cetera, et cetera, all these powers are in their hands, right? I mean, in this sense, they already do all these things. They do them coercively. Um, and the way we engage with that, we think that this is why we actually do have democratic elections, you know, and these are not administrative um, agencies, as in, for example, you know, I don't know, I guess Virginia has some Bureau of Transportation or Department of Transportation, right? I mean, you don't elect the Department of Transportation, you do elect your mayor and your city council, and partly because we think that this power should be balanced by democracy. Now, one again, if you look, uh, and if we read the, the literature about corporations, one of the problems is that corporate democracy is really in extreme deficit. Um, and, and therefore, on one hand, we have these really non-democratic corporations, which you're right, I mean, they might disappear, but let's say, usually as long as we live, they're kind of powerful and most of them are 
still there um, and exercising a lot of power not only on our speech and privacy and all these but also on our money you know most of our money is actually invested um, you know in our pension plans in corporations and we have no democratic um, uh, actually influence on them so again this is by way of saying that it's not just about the either transiency or political formal power that we have it's also about the de facto power that you have and whether um, you do have some kind of democratic control over um, this institution. Um, so, and the, and the only thing I'm saying, it's not that the power of cities should be unchecked. So it's not about, you know, cities should be autonomous and states can't tell them anything. No, states should still be willing, uh, able to say a lot of things, take away a lot of their powers, but in some instances of speech in particular, Actually, there, I think we need to think about more protection vis-a-vis -vis the power of the state. There's another hand. You. <coughs> so, if the city council has been more explicit about their personal endorsement of reviewing the statues when they voted, do you think that would have any help um, the Texas Sanctuary City's line of reasoning apply to this? So, I don't think so, in the sense that um, it's not that the state, uh, it's not that the Commonwealth, Virginia, said you can't vote to remove the statue. They could. They could have said, you, if you vote to remove statues, you will lose all your funding, or you will, we will personally remove you from office, which again, the Texas law looks a little bit like this, it turns out. Or we will <coughs> fine you and throw you in jail. Again, Texas law, believe it or not, does some of these kinds of things, or it looks a little like this, and some other states have done s stuff like this. If you, for example, in some states, if you try to pass any gun laws, local gun laws, you can be, as a, as a city councilor, put in prison. Um, uh, so, in this case, if the state did that, I think we would say, oh, that's sort of, now we're in, now we've sort of shifted and those people have rights, or they have the speech and debate clause or something like that. Um, here, it's, it's, the structure is you're, we have a preemptive state law. It tells you you can't do this. You do it, and then a private actor sue on asserting the state law. And, um, and again, the city is in the position of power, and the private litigants are in the position of rights asserting a law, a higher law. Um, and they have standing to do it. There's various poss possibilities there. We don't get a ton of litigation from city to state because often the states don't allow their cities to sue them in various ways, although intergovernmental takings might mm -hmm. be a, a distinction. I don't know if that's, if that's true. So, but, yeah, there's kind of this funny moment, which is are we regulating what they're... When we regulate monuments, are we regulating what the city council is saying... So let's say the city council say, I don't want to be associated with this speech, and you're making me associated with it. What's the answer to, by the court? We're not making you associated with it. Well, but you're making us keep this statue in the middle of our town, and it's in our park, and we have to maintain it and all this other stuff. So why, isn't the, why aren't you forcing me to speak? And they'll say, well, you're the city council. You're not the city. Like, we get into kind of a weird, a weird place. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Nice. You guys are thinking. <laughs> See what they're doing? 
good. See the moves being made? Mm-hmm. Are these your students? Oh, yeah. <laughs> these are good moves. I know. I didn't, I didn't help them. You didn't they came help in them. like that. They just came with all this knowledge. Some of them are my students, so that's <laughs> um, I Interesting, right? Which is, well, we all declared we don't want this, or we declared it 80 to 20 or so, whatever it would be. It might be close, and then you might worry, because you do worry about, well, what if, what if it's 51 to 49? Then, I don't know, what's the city <coughs> saying? Um, we do majority rule, but, um, yeah, you sort of have a closer connection to the thing, right? Mm-hmm. We just don't want this thing. We've declared it by, we've, our city council said it, now we've done it by referendum. Like, what else can we do to assert our, our community's desire? And yet, under traditional conventional views, it doesn't matter because the legislature has spoken also. And the legislature gets to win, in, in, in a, especially in a state like Virginia, but in most states, frankly. Yeah. Right, and the question is, for example, what would happen if the legislature decided to prohibit such a referendum, right? So you could imagine that, again, because of the wide preemption and kind of the state creature doctrine, the legislature supposedly is allowed to do that. There was an interesting case that came up in D.C., I think it was in the late 80s, it was around the legalization um, of medical marijuana. Um, and because D.C. has this particular status, so Congress actually enacted, after the city held a referendum about legalizing medical marijuana, Congress enacted uh, a special law prohibiting the counting of the outcome of the referendum, because it already took place, there were the ballots waiting to be counted, and then Congress blocked it. Um, So eventually, um, um, the court has interpreted that as offensive to the individual free speech rights of the Right, I mean, so you could say, right, I mean, this is where we kind of um, shift between the individual free speech as perhaps um, having, um, so what um, Mayor Dan Cohen talks about are derivative speech rights. So the speech rights of, let's say, D.C. or of Charlottesville are derivative of the individual, like, speech rights. So we can expand that too, right? I mean, we can think through these mechanisms of how to actually expand the speech rights of the city um, as just a manifestation of the speech rights of its individuals. The question is how, you know, what is the nexus between them? So in a referendum, it's really a close nexus. Once you move to a representative, when it's the city council, maybe it's not as close. Yeah, nice, that's nice. state could always, I mean, it could hypothetically get rid of the, in the monument context specifically, could repeal the law, um, which has been in effect again since 1904. Um, whether that's a function of political party, I think, is not a clear question. Um, so whether, yeah, whether it would be done by a, let's say, Democratic majority, I think is not clear. Um, so to that extent, I'm not sure. This, this election matters, but certainly a fewer, or rather a future um, state election would allow, right, would you know, let us level up and have them undo the sort of disability that they put on cities, so that is a constraint. Right, the Democratic governor, the current Democratic governor and the Democratic attorney general have, have, have uh, 
come strongly down on the side of saying local governments should be able to take these monuments down. I don't think that'll change at the state level now that you're, you're the, their successors. Uh, there is a question about the, the shift in, if there is a shift in power in the General Assembly and the, and the Senate won't come till later. But uh, there, were, there were exit polls that showed that and I don't know how good these are, it's who, who knows, that, that people favored keeping the monuments about 60 to 30, despite an overwhelming sort of democratic surge of uh, electing people who would, who would <coughs> advocate local control. They didn't advocate taking them down necessarily. Uh, so the state, monument, the state monument in Richmond is still sitting there, and they, the state would have to decide that. But, but so I don't know politically what folks would make of that. Um, it's, it does seem to be an appealing political position to say local governments should be allowed to decide. Even the, uh, I think Gillespie, uh, the Republican candidate for governor, sort of took that kind of position. Later he started to run ads that said they're threatening to take down our monuments and we need to keep them up. But initially he was like, oh, let localities decide. And so that I am always hopeful that local control arguments can appeal across political lines because sometimes they're going to hurt policies that Democrats like, sometimes they're going to hurt policies that Republicans like. And I've asserted that for years and years and years that um, maybe we can coalesce across a kind of federalism or localism principle. Um, at least, and on these things, I, you know, what puzzles me as a conceptual matter is why again, and I said this before, why the state would care. And yet the state cares deeply. And by the state, I mean the collective citizens, the culture, the, the right. And they cared very deeply about, even if they've never seen the monuments or whatever, they have very strong views on the monuments in Charlottesville, which are covered in plastic bags right now, just to let you know. So Yishai, who's come all the way from Tel Aviv, cannot see them. <laughs> Which is hurtful. I watch, I watch in the internet. <laughs> <laughs> You've seen them on television. Thank you all for coming. These are great questions. And um, the panelists will, is, are pleased to take other questions after we depart. Thank you all. Thank you.